Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Welcome back to the Intentional Growth Podcast. This is episode 236, and I appreciate you tuning back in. Today, my guest's name is Maceo Jordan. He is the co-founder of Connexia, which is a company acquiring the home healthcare and hospice industries to execute a buy and build strategy, which you've all heard me talk about. And he has a mission to improve quality of care and ease of access to healthcare. Maceo's experience spans a wildly eclectic mix of practical, real-world experience from the U.S. Army to the cutthroat world of electronic trading. As an early pioneer in computerized trading, Maceo built out one of the earliest high-frequency trading systems for the S&P 500. Before Connexia, Maceo was the CEO of Retire3 Publishing, or R3, which was a Phoenix-based publishing company. And Maceo started the company with a $25,000 loan and grew it to $26 million in just three years. At the time of his decision to retire, R3 had top-line revenues of $48 million. Since his exit, Maceo has launched products in CPG, publishing, healthcare. He's directly responsible for creating over $80 million in market capitalization for his companies in the last five years. Today, we're going to be talking about how day traders and entrepreneurs have way more in common than you might think, how to identify trends, create value, and harvest value. Maceo shares with us his experience of doing both and how it helps him spot market trends, identify industries and pockets of capital and margin right for innovation, and when it makes time to sell your business based on the market trends. We'll even dive into how a mistake cost him $8 million and what you can do to avoid a similar fate. This is going to be a good episode for you if you're looking to be more market savvy, understanding the thought process that goes into spotting market trends, this concept of pools of margin and capital that are ripe for innovation. It's a wonderful topic, and especially if you listen to last week's episode about star exhibits that pivoted really hardcore in March of 2020 because they were in the trade show industry and how they rode the trend of working from home. This episode is going to bring even more insight what you can be doing to make sure that your positioning, your company, and your future strategic plan with the consumer's dollars, with the trends that are happening now and into the future. I think it's crucial to have market data and market insights in order to make sure you are being intentional with where you're investing your time, money, and dollars so that way you're not doubling down on a trend that's declining unless that's your intention. Regardless, The more you understand about trends in the market, the more intentional you can be with you and your business and your strategic plan. Thanks for tuning in. Go check out the Intentional Growth Digital Course, which is a deep dive into valuations, exits, deal structures, strategic planning, financial clarity, and strategies. So that way you can actually clarify a path to a more valuable business with the end in mind. Without further ado, here's my episode with Maceo Jordan. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Maceo, how are you doing this morning? Brian, I'm doing fantastic, especially because I know what we're going to dig into. This is going to be a good one for your for your audience, man. I'm excited. Um, and uh, you you had a, a, a company that reached out to have you on my show. And I'll tell you what, I, one out of 50 actually is worth it. And so I saw your bio. I was like, hey, this is this is going to be fun. And <laughs> I'm assuming with the online space you've been on and been in a couple other uh, industries that um, if we were to spend some time, we'd have a lot of common acquaintances that uh we've got um, oh yeah <laughs> and so let's just get just get us caught up to speed on like you know what's your background the businesses and then we can kind of put, unpack the different parts of the journey along the way well you know i'll start with i think what's most relevant for the audience today i got started selling online in 1993 1994 back when it was just irc chat you know so there was no google there was no pay-per-click <laughs> Transition out of that was trading in in the hedge fund world for a long time, developing algorithms and computerized trading. And then fast forward to around 2005 is when I got back into, you know, I'll call it 
full-time marketing, if you will. And so digital was still really new back then. You know, there was no unified video players. I mean, it was the wild west, man. But I had the good fortune of growing a company from a $25,000 loan to just under 50 million in revenue. We hit 23 million in just a few years. But, you know, it was really the culmination of all of my experience to that point that enabled me uh, to execute on that. Uh, I exited that company in 2012 and spent a lot of years working with entrepreneurs. I mean, that's where we connected, uh, you know, because I just couldn't understand why more entrepreneurs, especially in the technology space, were not creating something that they could go sell. I mean, they just, either they didn't get it, they, you know, meaning they didn't get the process. They didn't really understand what the value was. Like, you know, why should I yeah. do it? Because it's not, you know, it's not falling off a log. You and I both know that. You know, so I've got a lot to say about, you know, that because I've worked intimately with entrepreneurs. I've even, I've even taken on my own dime, gone into companies to find out, could I go into a company and get them thinking about an eventual exit, you know, change, you know, change it from the inside out. And so I've got to tell you, first of all, the, the bad news is no, right? You know, the entrepreneur has got to get this at a DNA level. But anyway, so it's it's been a wild ride. Uh, I'm a crazy mad scientist. I've, I've tested a massive amount of stuff. Uh, one of my philosophies is, you know, I'm never going to tell somebody to do something that I haven't tested with my own money. And if I am going to experiment, even if I'm a consultant, then I'm going to pay for it. I, I refuse to let a client test something just because I read it in a blog somewhere. Uh, so it, it's because I listened to a little bit of one of your interviews uh, for like the different podcasts and you, and your high frequency trading. Uh, so I'm going to dip into a different dimension for a second. So yeah, huge fan of like Ray Dalio, uh, Flash Boys is what I thought oh, of when I saw your bio. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and uh, so the reason I, that, that all came to mind is Skin in the Game by Nassim. And you actually mentioned Nassim oh, Taleb. Yeah. Read all these books, man. So like, I think there's an interesting intersection of business and then like understanding the markets and money, but that also like value. So like you, you, right. there's an interesting kind of crossover in a couple of different worlds. Well, dude, so in, as a trader, what you learn very quickly is it's not about you. I don't care if you're, you're managing $50 billion, you, know, you cannot move the market for very long. And so what, what every successful trader realizes at some point is you need another buyer and another one and another one and so on, you know, take price up. Uh, you know, some people might call that a trend. Um, there are ways to manipulate it. I mean, that's kind of what I did. You know, I was, I was at more of a marquee making firm and our job was to manipulate price. But even with that, it was all very short lived. Right? So our job was to come in when somebody wanted to exit a big position. So we were there to create, actually the, the real term for it is called foment. We were there to create uh, an environment where big orders would come out of the woodwork. And so what, what traders intimately know that entrepreneurs don't is value. I mean, the, the, the stock market, the futures market is 100% about value because it takes a willing buyer and a willing seller. I mean, I've, I've seen guys, even on Microsoft, a big symbol, sit on the bid or the offer sometimes for 20 or 30 minutes. Why? Because nobody was willing to take their offer you know, or, or their bid. So say they've got 50,000 shares that they're trying to get out of, like fill or kill, which fill or kill, if you don't know, means you, somebody needs to come and take all 50,000. And so I remember I got in an argument with one of the guys I was trading for. He was trying to exit 50,000 shares of Microsoft and it was always fill or kill. I'm like, Steve, what are you doing, man? Sell it 5,000 at a time. Well, I might not get my price. I'm like, you're not getting any price now, are you? <laughs> and he kind of sat there for a second. He's like, yeah, you're right. But that's a perfect example of the, the value was in his mind and it was Microsoft, right? So nobody would argue that, you know, Microsoft stock has no value, right? Right. But to that one trader at that moment, it literally had no value. He couldn't sell it. And so the when when entrepreneurs are thinking about their company, it's the same thing, man. You could be sitting there on the bid for five years trying to sell your crappy company, and everybody's like, no, nope, I'll pass, I'll pass. And all day long, what do the entrepreneurs say? Why isn't anybody buying this? I know my company is worth X. Dude, the marketplace is telling you zero, right? So let's turn things around. Let's find out what the market actually values. And so even on something like Microsoft, which you would think, 
oh, this is a really liquid stock. I can get rid of it any time. No, I mean, mostly you're dealing with, you know, thousand lot, maybe two, three, uh, 5,000 is really about the most you could reliably uh, get off on Microsoft, but certainly not 50,000. It wasn't working. So I think that's huge and fundamental for a foundation to, as we yep. progress your story too. And it's just interesting uh, comment on that. And so it was that uh, after we sold our business and I realized how the market, like what actually goes in your pocket afterwards and all the options. Right. I got into wealth management for a hot second uh, afterwards, understanding what to do with the money, got my securities license. And then I kind of shifted my mindset into the, the world that you're talking about. So it was the different order, but like, right. that's when you kind of like realize that private business is the same thing. How did yep. this translate into your business? And what was, you know, maybe, maybe give the, uh, the listeners a little bit of an overview. What was the business? Why'd you start it? And maybe, or like, what was the opportunity? Yeah. So it's a funny story. I, so coming out of the 2000s, uh, I was actually a street preacher for about five years. No way. Um, yeah, and I was constantly, you know, I just wanted to do what God wanted me to do. Uh, and I kept getting drawn back into business. And finally, in 2005, I said, well, you know, Lord, if you want me to do this, it's going to be huge, hugely successful. Otherwise, I'm just going to go clean toilets or something. You know, I, I don't know. And so that in, in 2005 is when I refocused back on what business. What is a street preacher? Yeah, <laughs> so I can't get. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I mean, I was. Is. I know what a street is, but those two combined, I have not heard. It's basically preaching on the street, so talking to just everyday people about uh, yeah. you know the gospel and Jesus, man. I mean, it's that's awesome. Yeah, we we were we were pretty much we were pretty out there. I could tell you a million stories about that, but let me. Yeah. I digress. So you're, out there, you're out there selling the truth, man. Like so, you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yep. Amen. So it was. It was right at the beginning of what we now see as quote unquote digital marketing and e-commerce and all of that. Uh, Amazon, you know, of course, had been in the headlines forever, but they were still, you know, they were still losing a, a crap ton of money. Nobody had really figured it out. But the real issue, you know, striking to the heart of what I learned as a trader is that the, there wasn't a trend to jump on. Um, the average person back then still really wasn't comfortable with putting their credit card online. You know, the formatting wasn't really right. So, you know, if you couldn't really see, I mean, for the few people that had a screen to buy on, you couldn't really see it. And if, and saying that, we didn't have mobile phones, right? So it, you didn't have internet everywhere. So there were a lot of I things that were going talkies. I'm just thinking of like the exact timeline to say where like, you have like the cars, company cars that are like www dot, like you have to like, the car is telling you to that's, go online. That's right. <laughs> oh man, it was... And you got to remember back then, Bill Gates was still like, ah, you know, this internet's just going to be a, you know, a passing thing. Yeah. I mean, people did think that it was going to facilitate commerce, but nobody knew that it was going to be what it is today. Yeah. You know, so I, I jumped in it and looked at it more as a medium, like a marketing medium, right? So I, I'm very much versed in direct response marketing. So anyway, in 2005, I tried a bunch of different stuff. And it, it probably shocks people to know I didn't jump into the financial world right away. I was talking to a trading mentor of mine. Uh, his name is Larry Pesavento. And he said, my boy, you know, you need to start a newsletter. And I was like, what the heck is that? So we talked about that for a little while. Of course, today they're ubiquitous, right? PD, right. you know, it's like e info marketing is ubiquitous online. And so I just, I happened to be in those early, early days of information marketing when the internet was accessible to entrepreneurs as a medium for selling info products. And really, because of the, the, the mechanics and the economics of info, info marketing, uh, digital marketing is very attractive. You know, we were selling through the mail, right? So you've got to spend 50 or 60 cents on an envelope. It's actually about a buck 20 when you looked at all the printing. Uh, if you really wanted to get somebody's attention, then you were looking at FedEx, which, you know, then you're looking at 15 to, 13 to $15, you know, just for the envelope and the postage. Mm -hmm. And so we looked at digital marketing as being more capital efficient, which it was. So that's why I gravitated to it as a, as a main issue. But then I also saw, you know, hey, this is on computers. When I looked at Google and the pay-per-click engines, I said, man, this is just an auction market, which is like the stock market. You know, so I said, there's got to be a way to use some of these bidding algorithms. And I, I applied a lot of my uh, more, more short-term trading theories and tactics to uh, pay-per-click very successfully. But really the bulk of what I did was in, applying the same trend thinking from the markets to business, uh, which was my way of constraining risk, right? So the biggest risk 
in as an entrepreneur is that you're going to sell something and you're not going to have enough buyers to relieve you of all of your inventory, right? So entrepreneurs, we all make money on turning capital, no different than a trader. You know, so people tend to gravitate towards day trading because they think, man, if I could turn my capital over 50 times a day and every time I did that, I made a hundred bucks, I'm going to get rich. Well, look, that's all Walmart's doing. They're taking their money, they're converting it into a product, and then they turn that to consumers. And so obviously, if you have more and more retail locations, you can turn more product, which means you're turning your capital, right, capital turnover. I mean, let's get down to the basics. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at business, if you're putting your capital into something that doesn't have enough of a trend behind it, you're going to be stuck with your inventory. You know, think Cabbage Patch Kids, Beanie Babies, you know, these things that were these massive fads, massive trends for a short amount of time, but then they reached the cliff or the waterfall and demand basically went down to zero. And so that, you know, as an entrepreneur, we've got to think about our company, our businesses as a capital turnover engine. Our efficiency as an entrepreneur is going to reflect how much of that capital are we retaining as we turn it over. Right? That's those are the dials that you can turn inside of the company. But the main driver that everybody skips is the dang trend. I mean, even you know, so even in cell phones, right? The, the thing that's rough about cell phones is we're coming out with a new model. What every year now, basically? An iPhone, yeah. iPhones, an iPhone. The camera, yeah. right? That's <laughs> they're selling a different camera, basically. <laughs> but so if, if you if you look at your whatever it is that you're doing in the context of the trend first. And then you can take care of the guts of the company, the, the capital efficiency second, you're going to find the risk in, in a business, the risk profile is considerably different. And so I was going to say, the, so there's a couple comments I want to, because oh, I want to get into the, your business too, and how this all applies to your business and then all the companies that you work with too. But, but I want to, I want to kind of like link up a couple of important themes that you've touched on. And I want to hear your your uh, input on it. So what I find interesting is that so you're talking about trends and you're talking about capital turnover, so the cash flow of that. Mm -hmm. But then, so what's interesting is how how you're looking at trends and strategy. But then also because of your background in trading, you understand value. So like just because you have cash flow, that doesn't mean that it's got high enterprise value. So as you're kind of weaving this together, Maseo, just talking about like. The risk of the cash because what in our in our training, what we do some context behind it is as we walk through the buildup of the discounted cash flow, company yep. specific risk is the biggest variant. Right. Mm -hmm. So just kind of weave that in as you're talking about capital turnover and trends. A lot of people aren't looking at trends and they're not looking at a couple of these key components. They're just waking up and grinding away. Like they just grind and they just like right. aren't looking up. Well, so let's um because of my trading background, I'll try and make it simple and practical at the same time. So every every SaaS, so SaaS, if you don't know, is software as a service, right? So you're going to code a bunch of this stuff up. And of course, the, the adage is there, why do I need your crap instead of a spreadsheet, right? So let's assume that you have an idea that's better <laughs> yeah. than a spreadsheet. Really expensive which, GUI, right? <laughs> right. By the way, it's probably not, which is part of your problem. I hate to break it to you, but let's say you, you do have something that's actually going to work. Where, where most people go wrong is in understanding that your your solution is running to obsolescence right so it's the magic is in thinking where's the market going to be 3 years from now 5 years from now which is also why it's it's really tough the way around all of this again thinking about value is going to a smaller market so I'll take this all the way back to the old days when we used to actually trade person to person. So a bunch of, of people screaming in a pit, you know, <laughs> yelling, yelling, you know, like this and the hand signals. The boiler room. <laughs> oh, man. So in inside of that pit, let's say it's the S&P 500, right? So everybody knows the S&P 500 who's looked at the stock market. Again, it's very liquid. It's not lumber. You know, it's not beanie babies. Inside of that huge pit, you could have you could have major price discrepancies. And it's because in that small physical area of the pit, somebody walked in with a huge order. It's that simple. And so even though you've got this massive market that's out there, so whether so that could be SaaS, it could be just internet, you know, it could be retail, it could be cell phones. If we think about it in that way, like we have this big marketplace, where do we find these small 
concentrated pockets of value. So if I know it's called in, in the old days, we called it paper, right? So if I know paper's coming into the pit, that's a Goldman Sachs or, you know, Solomon Smith Marty back in the day with an order to buy or sell, say a million contracts. That's a lot. And I know for a short period of time, there's, there's, you can eat off, you can eat a lot off of a million contracts, but it's going to end, right? That it's not going to take six years for that to play out. That's where entrepreneurs miss is they don't really dig down from this huge space that's their market into the pocket of value. So, like, let's say you go into uh, auto dealerships, and uh, not even let's say it's auto parts stores. And you realize there's lots of mom and pop. They don't, you know, have no way to aggregate any of the inventory. You know, they're either calling people up or, you know, going into a book and looking it up. And so you go in your SaaS solution, which is going to be better than a spreadsheet, is yes, it's the spreadsheet, just organizing parts and the, you know, what's the item ID and the price. You can do that with a spreadsheet. But if you link them up to some national network, it's like, okay, wait a minute, now we're talking. Well, why is that? Well, it's because the internet gives us the ability to connect more pockets of value. That guy in Tupelo, Mississippi, all by himself, running his parts store, has very little value. 5,000 of those guys have extreme value. Now, when you start chunking that up into, well, you know, discounted cash flows and really getting into the nuts and bolts of it, you're gonna find you have at least something to work with when you eventually start talking about who's gonna acquire you. So I'll jump, I'll jump over all of that. So where I typically go is, okay, have I found a pocket of value to who's going to buy this pocket of value that I've concentrated? Now that is when you think about exits and strategic buyers uh, versus private equity funds, that's the secret sauce is when you jump from your business nuts and bolts to selling those nuts and bolts, you can look backwards at it with a completely different set of eyes. And you can start to understand what that eventual buyer is not only going to want, what they're going to value, and more importantly, where you can sell your company for more money. Because look, we can all go in and say, well, com company X is worth three times EBITDA or five times EBITDA, or it's a tech company, so it's 15 times. Well, no, I mean, I'm working on a roll-up right now where we can actually make a case for 30 times revenue. Well, how do you do that, Maceo? Well, you do that by number one, finding the pocket of value and then going and investigating the people that you're gonna to target to buy it and understanding what makes their business work and then designing your company, reverse engineer your company to provide that, like in a legitimate, in a legitimate way, not like it's just bolted okay. on. No, and when I find, and I'm curious, like when you're talking about finding that pocket of value, I mean, given the fact that the US is like what, 70, 72% consumer-based economy, and this goes back to the, the understand the markets, right? You're going, okay, well, people buy, excuse me, shit. People wake right. up and they yep. buy stuff every day. Yep. Who's buying what and why? And it's usually to make themselves feel good, eliminate yes. frustration, period, right? And hopefully those people have money right. to buy shit. And then That's right. what are the industries that are riding that wave? And right. if you think about like, it's all starting from margin and accumulating capital in those trusts. Yes. It's like, well, so let's, so I'll, I'll open up the, the technique that I use to, to discover trends. Well, actually, you know, you know, let me just talk about it practically. So when I was looking around at all these different businesses, so let's, let's go back to 2005 in our brains, uh, where I had a, a lot more hair. It actually was a lot bigger. I was, you know, more of a power lifter back then, which, you know, I'm kind of missing at the moment. <laughs> so it's back then, right? So you, you're seeing this muscle headed dude walk into a library hour upon hour every day. So why did I do that? In between street preaching too. It, well, no, this is when I transitioned out of that. Okay. So, I, yeah. so I, was, I wasn't doing that anymore. Um, so it's like full time. I'm, I've you yeah. know, got, I literally had 25,000 to my name. So let me make that clear. It wasn't like I had money coming in. We were eating off of that 25 grand at the same time. And so I went in and looked at something called the SRDS. Most libraries still have it, although you know they're not used as much, but it was that was the data aggregator for all of the newsletters and stuff that was sold in direct mail. Hmm. Now, the reason why I went there is because in order for them to provide value to advertisers, they had to tell you how many people were on the list and what was their average purchase price. Well, dude, if I want to know how much people are spending, I'm just going to go look. <laughs> this, is what, this is why 
I, one of the things I don't like about what's going on now in the digital world is they, they don't expose that information very much anymore. So anyway, I went back, I was going through the SRDS, I got into the financial section, I found there was about a billion and a half, so $1.5 billion being spent every 90 days on financial newsletters. I said, well, dude, that's a lot of money. I mean, certainly I can roll around in, in that kind of a pool and have some of it you know, stick to me. And so that's a, just a practical example of one way that you can do it is go, go out, find as best as you can where people are spending their money. You know, so you can go into tools today like SimilarWeb, um, AdBeat is another one where you can, at least from the advertising side, see where companies are spending their money. Uh, you know, granted, they're not going to tell you how much, you know, what the customer acquisition cost or what their average purchase price is, but you'll at least get some of the data. And so that's, that's one way to do it. The other way is just listen for problems. What are people complaining about? Um, and then talk to those people and find out, well, is this something they're just complaining about because they feel like they need to complain in that moment? Or is it a real problem that they have in their business? So that auto parts store, you know, the question would be, well, you know, how much or how many times a day or a week or a month does somebody come in, ask for a part, and you have to tell them that you don't have it and you can't get it like in a reasonable amount of time. And you're probably going to find in some cases, it's a lot, you know, especially when you start dealing in specialty parts. So this is where the, the beauty of the internet is you can, you can aggregate you can aggregate the long tail, right? That's the, the real power of the internet. The real power of Amazon is that Jeff Bezos saw early, early on that you could aggregate the long tail. The name of the book is escaping me. Jeff Bezos has actually written up in it. I'd, I'd almost go find it, let you edit it out. Anyway. The everything, everything story? No, it's earlier than that. This is this is like ninety two, ninety three. Yeah, right. I mean, it was the second edition in ninety two or ninety three. Anyway, so back, that's that. What that book was saying was that. So this and this is how sometimes the academics get it right. What the academics were saying is, hey, this internet thing is going to aggregate all of these small markets to where they're at least accessible, right? So if you are going to start something in the digital realm, when you start with that premise. What long tail, and if you don't know, long tail just means you've got, instead of one big market where people are spending, say, $10,000 per transaction, you've got 10,000 people spending $100. But there's that, here's the key, that $100 is not a maybe, right? It's not Netflix, where I could read a book or mm -hmm. go to sleep or take a walk. It's like, if I don't spend that 100 bucks, I'm in trouble, or I'm, you know, I'm losing something important in, in my business or in my life. That's the power of the internet. And so when you when you look at it that way, you're you're not stuck on, you know, just that one outlet, which means you may only see one or two examples of it in, in your town or somewhere that's near you. Your job then is to go out and figure out, well, how many of these people are there? Another way to do it would be to go to um, you know, a list broker, Info USA, you can do it relatively cheaply. And just do a search. Well, how many businesses fit that one category? And they're they're going to let you sort it by you know revenue, employee size. You, know, so you can get a ton of information absolutely for free before you even start. Which, by the way, is everything. Most entrepreneurs, the big mistake they make, and you alluded to this earlier, Ryan, is they just jump in. They're like, oh, I got, I have a brilliant idea. I love my idea because it's my idea, and I'm going to go make a million bucks off of it. And then they go spend, you know, their life savings, their family's life savings, only to find out five years later, it's like, oh wow, well we lost money. And then a, you know, a, a smart aleck like me comes in and says, well, yeah, duh, like I could have told you that in thirty seconds, which is, you know, why I'm that messenger that gets his head lopped off quite a bit, only because I've got a, that different perspective, you know. So I come into a company looking at it in reverse, you know. So I want to say, okay, well, where do you people want to end up? Do you want to end up with a company that cash flows? And you eat off of the cash flow for the rest of your life, and dump that into other stuff. Do you want to, you know, build something up, uh, you know, build up enterprise value and sell that off? You have to start with your end in mind in order to get there, right? So we don't. And, and end from a couple of different things that we were talking about, which is the trend and the strategy, yes. but also making yes. sure that at the end it's not something that is just revenue, but it's actually got enterprise value, right? right? And that and. So like, as you're continuing the story, 
going to say was like, I'm curious, like, so obviously insanely important when you start a business, right? Like start with the end in mind. It's so Stephen, it's so like, I think right. like out there that people kind of get numb to it, but it's so true based on what we were just saying. But how do you deal with someone that did the idea, had an opportunity, their client started them off into entrepreneurship. Now they got a $2 million business because the opportunity just forced them into it. Or like, or they start without doing this research and they're, they're in their journey, Maceo, and you got the sunk cost fallacy going on and you're going, it's going to work. It's going to work. It's going to work. It's going to work. <laughs> I wish I had good news. You know, it's, <laughs> so I'll, I'll dovetail this into uh, one of the lessons that I learned as a trader was around mindset. And so the average is trading is 90% mental as my career got towards the end, I shifted that to 100%. And, you know, entrepreneurship, trading, it's 100% mental. As a business owner, you have got to look at things as they are, not how you wish them to be. And it's so tough when you've spent hours and hours. I mean, this is, you know, we, we refer to our businesses like our kids, right? This is my baby. First of all, no, it's not. You know, the, the employees that you think are so loyal, they'll leave for more money. They'll leave for better benefits. They'll, 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 they'll figure it out. It's like, we don't have to be so concerned about those particular things. Now I'm not advocating for, you know, like just cutting people's heads off, but that's just the reality of it. And so I'm also, uh, by the way, I'm also a huge proponent of overpaying people and rewarding people with stock options. Um, and I, the main reason why I do that is because that's the way you keep them. It's like that way they don't get a better offer and you lose your best people, duh. But so the, the place to start would be, what is, what is the market really? What is the life cycle of your customer really? So I'll give you an example. I'm not affiliated with this company. Um, it just came up in one of the Slack groups I'm in. It's a company called Videos uh, and it's around video stuff. And we were having a discussion around lifetime, selling a lifetime package. My point was, it, first of all, if that was going to be a successful tactic, every VC-backed company in Silicon Valley would be doing it. And I can just say it's a dumb idea because none of them are doing it. But let's dig in, is what I said. So the, what you wind up sacrificing by selling a lifetime package is some incremental future revenue. Now, the guy said, well, I can just sell upgrades. I said, true, but have you looked at how many of your lifetime buyers bought your upgrade? And he said, no. And I said, okay, well then you're assuming, this is the key point. He was assuming he could sell them an upgrade, but he said it like it was a sure thing. That's an important thing not to miss. In his conversation, he was reinforcing his already done belief that he was okay selling the lifetime revenue because at some future point, he could upgrade them. He's not looking at the way things really are. He's looking at them as he wants them to be. Now, this is there, there's a lot of cognitive biases that go into this. It's really worth some study. MIT has a great behavioral lab. Um, I narrowly missed going to MIT. Out of the army, I got accepted, but I never went. But they, they do really good work in their behavioral economics. And I'm telling you, this is the enemy of entrepreneurs. As soon as we get an idea, we think it's the best thing in the world. What we miss is the longer we stay in that headspace of this is an awesome idea, fast forward to the company videos, three, I think it's three or four years old, they've now resold a massive amount of revenue, but they've also conditioned their customer to think, I'm a lifetime client. Now I've tested lifetime revenue deals, which you wind up putting into somebody's head is, oh, then I get everything for free. It's inescapable. You can't sell around it. If you try and sell around it, they're going to be pissed off. And then they wind up just leaving the platform and saying, well, I'll just write off the, the lifetime money that I gave them. Uh, you know, he's, they cut off their nose to spite their face. Like, well, he's a jerk. I'm just not going to use his product. And so the, let's not get caught up. Let me not get caught up on the lifetime value. It's the mindset, right? So you've got to be able to look at where your business is now. Say it's a couple of million bucks, like Ryan said, it's grown you're kind of in the grind, your head's been down for a long time, and now you're first, you're just poking your head up and looking around. The best thing you can do is focus on data. What do we know and what can we measure? Some key questions that I ask compared to what and how do you know that? All you have to do is keep <laughs> repeating those annoying questions. 
and you will, I, I'm telling you, it work, it's just like Novocaine. Give it some time it's and it'll work. All the people and the misinformation out, going out these days. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, yeah, I would get into I would get into some pretty heated conversations. You know, like for example, somebody saying, Oh, you should you should split test the color on your page. That's a complete waste of time. And so if you dig in, you say, Okay, well, how do you know that? How do you know that? How do you know that? What you eventually find out is they tested it on 150 clicks, you know, seven years ago. And based on those 150 clicks, when they stopped the experiment, True. you know, they went from making five bucks to making 10 bucks and they're telling, oh, 200% improvement. There's social currency of like uh, their word of advice that they want to about. Oh my gosh. It's, so those two questions as the entrepreneur will serve you to get to reality. Look, this, it's not, we're not trying to make it personal. We're not trying to insult anybody. All we're trying to do is figure out what the hell is really going on. 100%. Yep. And so that, that will help that person. So the person you just described is ask those questions of your team, ask it of yourself. If you're bringing up, if you're alone in your office, write it down. So, you know, if, if you're taking notes, okay, so how do I know? And then fill in the blank. How do I know my lifetime value is $500? Well, I don't know. And then just, but then write it down. How did you calculate it? Go in and look at on what customer cohort. Now, if you don't know, cohort is just a group, like a, yeah. you have 50 customers that bought in May of 2012. That would be a cohort. So did you use any of that information? So it will force you to get to the reality of what's going on eventually. I mean, if you ask it enough, I mean, in the trading world, you know, there's just no time for bullshit. Like you cannot let somebody's opinion push buy or sell. I mean, my goodness, you, you, you're going to lose a, a massive amount of money. And so a lot of this, I'm steeped in this, uh, I'm, you, Mostly through embarrassment. <laughs> you touched on a, an interesting concept too. Like on the trading floor, it's not about opinions or, or not about what was it? Was it opinions that you just said? Or yeah, yep. it's so synonymous to like in the private world of MA, you have the people that are buyers, where whether it's a strategic buyer or whether it's a private equity firm or mm -hmm. you, know, you see whoever it is, they're, they're approaching it like you just said, and the owner's going, but I started this in my garage and I risked my 401k and they're going, what's the risk of the cash flow, sir <laughs> or ma'am? <laughs> right. They don't care. And, and this, look, we're not, we're never going to separate our emotions from what we're doing. And that's actually a, what a lot of people don't know about traders is they're very much into mindset. They're very aware of their emotions. And especially the, the successful funds will like make you see a psychologist. Uh, you know, for this reason, like we've, you've got to get a real handle on your own emotions before they're going to allocate a bunch of money to you. But it's, it's not enough to just say, oh, it's just business. Realize that it's not just business for you, the entrepreneur, going into the situation. Um, the way around it, and this comes straight out of trading, is pick your target. What do you want to make for your company? Write that down. But then also be open when you start getting feedback that says, you know, maybe that's too high. Obviously, if it's too low, you're going to get people, you know, saying yes to your offer very quickly. With the, that's obvious, just raise your price. But if people are saying no, or if they're giving you pushback, or if you're not getting, you know, calls back, uh, if it's taking you months and months and months to sell your company, uh, because I, I mean, I'm in the middle of, of two different rollups right now. I can tell you, it should not take you a year to sell your company. It, should, it really shouldn't even take you you know, multiple engagements to sell your company. It, it's because you're, you're coming back to price and terms, right? Uh, yeah, I'll pay you a billion dollars for your company. It's a billion, you know, $1 a year for a billion years, right? So it, it's price and terms. But again, it's looking at it from what's really going on. What is your buyer willing to pay you? And why? And, and exactly. And why more, most importantly. And so do some due diligence. If you're selling to a PE firm, Look at their portfolio. You know, go to a conference where they're where they're speaking, or get on a Zoom call. Listen to what they're saying. What do they want? What's their philosophy? What kind of rate, rates of return do they want? And you're going to know with beyond a shadow of a doubt whether or not you even fall into that realm. Well, I think that's the, you, you, the big difference uh, of PE firms compared to an normal entrepreneur is they have the investment thesis that drives everything that they're doing. Yes. They're like not many entrepreneurs come up with their investment thesis, which is just their strategic plan. <laughs> I think about our old business and say, oh, it's like we're in copiers and print. Like that's not really yeah. booming upwards. Right. But there are PE. What a great business, man. <laughs> 
back in the day, man. And yeah, that's right. all I grew up hearing. Back in the day, there used to be lots yeah. of margins. <laughs> well, there's not anymore. So what are we going to do about it? But, but you want toner? That's 500 bucks. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> like pouring it into the thing. That's how far back I go, man. Oh, my oh there goodness. used to be fire extinguishers on the copiers just to make sure that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, my point is, is like, you know, there are PE firms in the space right now, but they, they have like a, a similar investment thesis of like Blockbuster, which is all eight fees. The company's never coming back. Let's ride the ship right into the ground. But they'll right. still ride it into the ground, making a 21% rate of return. That's right. Like, yep. It's just like there's a there's a reason behind the entire that's right. endeavor. Well, that's the the main the main reason why I tell entrepreneurs you have to start looking at venture capital, you have to start looking at private equity, is because they can't dick around, man. They have to have a plan. Nobody in the world is going to drop. The reason I'm getting so excited about this is because people talk about you know closed markets and how there's no opportunity. Look, it's not just that. So I, I had the good fortune of going through special forces selection. I wasn't selected. I was never a green beret, but I made it through selection, which wow. is, yeah. that's huge. Not many people do. The reason why special forces has selection is because they don't want every schmuck off the street coming in and handing them a gun and kicking them out the back of an airplane. <laughs> so no, no rational person is going to spend the decades it takes to amass 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 million in cash and then drop a couple million on you without having a selection program. That's Yale, it's Harvard, it's Stanford. Now I'm not, I'm not big on education, I'm just saying that's their shortcut. So they know, okay, if you got into Stanford and they're gonna call some of your professor, they find out, okay, you weren't a total slacker. It's like, okay, they at least know something about you. Mm -hmm. That's enough of that. So, the, but the reason why more entrepreneurs have got to start studying venture capital is from the investor side of things, right? So you want people to go through some kind of selection process. Why? Because it's tough to amass $30 million in cash. It's tough to amass a million dollars in cash. Just think about you know, the basic, you know, let's call it average margins of a company, say it's eight to 10%. Well, let's just take 10%. That means you've had to sell $300 million worth of crap. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's just let that sink in for a minute. And that's assuming everything's sitting on all cylinders. That's it's actually a little bit more than that because I haven't talked about taxes well, and everything else. Right? after taxes in what state? <laughs> so it's like exactly right. So let's crank it up another what? Let's call it. Let's just round it up to forty percent. So now we're talking. We're close to a billion dollars in sales. I mean, think about that. So you you sold almost a billion dollars worth of stuff, and now you've got this money. You just are you just going to drop that on somebody? Because let's think about it from the investor standpoint. How long did that take them? Well, if they were VC, maybe five to seven years, right? If they had a unicorn like ARC, okay, five to seven years. Start when you're 23, you know, you're lucky. Now you're 30. Okay, yeah, you could do it again. What if you're like me? You're not 30 anymore. Dude, I am not giving anybody a, a million dollars in cash without asking a whole hell of a lot of questions. Because I know I don't have a lot of time on the clock and I'm just not going to fiddle fart around with them. Well, and by the way, people with that much money don't want a job again. Well, that's, oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I heard this on Shark Tank. Um, Robert, uh, I'm going to butcher his last name. Sorry, Robert. Um, so he was negotiating with the company. And they had the audacity to say, well, if we're going to let you in our company, we expect you to work. And Robert, to his credit, just put his pad down, <laughs> sat back, and he said, I'm sorry, it just doesn't work that way. I'm out. <laughs> but, but this, so this is the mindset of entrepreneurs, right? Like you said, I've been working in this. I started in my garage. Oh, man. Nobody cares. Oh, Nobody cares. Well, like, can, have you heard this once or a thousand times? Sale. This is a great company. I make 400 grand a year. I work 90 hours a week. I have all this risk. I got personal guarantees in my house and my 401k. You should definitely pay me $5 million for this. Right. Yes. I've I've heard that quite a bit actually. <laughs> Five million for a job that's nine. Yeah, you just kind of reverse engineer that and just like just say it out loud to yourself. <laughs> oh my! I had this a couple of great entrepreneurs in Dallas. The, the businesses were not even profitable, and they now they came around, but they they couldn't fathom why somebody why people weren't lining up to pay them five or six million bucks for that. And so I just broke down the math. I said, listen. First of all, if I'm making 
$200,000 in profit, how long is it going to take me to just earn my investment back? Let's just start there. And I, I waited. Well, we don't know. I said, somebody grab a calculator. Let's do it. <laughs> like, you're really going to make us do the math? I said, we're going to do the uh, math right well, now. Yeah, right. <laughs> and we divided it out. And I said, okay, would you on this call invest 5 million bucks to take that long just to break even? And I let the pause go until somebody answered me. And finally, they all, one at a time, there's three of the entrepreneurs there. Each of them said, well, no. I said, then why the hell are you expecting somebody else to do it? I said, yeah, maybe if you, you know, you're thinking the greater fool theory or something like that. But I said, this is why your businesses are not going to sell. And then I gave them, I gave them an offer, uh, you know, for, for their businesses. And I said, look, this is not what you want. I understand this is not what you want, but this is what you're going to get. And so that's, that's just tough news, man. I mean, because these people had been 25 years, one was 20 years, one was 25, the other one was 30 years in their businesses. Um, and you could, and you could just see it from their financials. Like they had dumped money back in, they had overpaid their employees. Like, oh yeah, we know we have more people on than we need. And I'm like, okay, why would you do that? I mean, I get it, but now, but here's, so here's the punchline at the end of their career, they thought this is really what they thought. Okay, we're going to invest in our company by paying our employees and keeping the thing afloat. And now they're at the end of the road saying, okay, market, here's my widget, which is their company. Pay me 5 million bucks. And nobody's hitting the bid. Nobody's willing to take them up on that. And so the, the real tragedy is that the entrepreneurs don't understand where the value is. But this goes all the way back to what, what you started talking about, is as the entrepreneur, you have to understand where the real value is. Now, is it in your people? Yes, to a degree. Is it in your systems and processes? Yes, to a degree. Your equipment? Yes, to a degree. Your job is to think realistically about to what degree are those things valuable. So if you're talking about a company where you know, you're thinking, I'm going to have five years of a downturn, is it, are you going to get a return on your investment? So sit down write out how much money you are going to be dumping into your business over those five years, and then ask yourself, how much of a return do I need on this cash to make this decision worthwhile to me? And that alone will save many a heartache. And this is, it kind of goes back to this common theme that I keep saying that the people that are doing this and doing and moving and shaking right now are operators that knew how to do this, do yep. the work, but also have the finance to be able to guide their work. It's like the Venn yep. diagram where you have the little intersection in between, because it's not just spreadsheet junkies that have never fired <laughs> someone and had their company blow because of it. It's like right. combination of the two. And yes. I know we're running short on time, like in the next 10 minutes, I'm curious, like, so when you're talking about understanding the true value, spotting these trends, and then why don't you kind of just give us a, an insight and say on how this was applied to you selling your business the first time, but also with the current rollups that you're doing, like these concepts have been amazing and it's been a fun conversation, but how are you doing? How, how did it apply to both of those kind of uh, journeys that you've been a part of? So the good news is I, I learned, I learned my big lesson the hard way. And so this is, this is not going to be good news. So with my e-commerce company, I dumped, massive amount of cash into it to build something that nobody wanted. I was way too early. And so classic mistake. So my e-commerce company, I built APIs into, which an API is called application programming and interface, where basically you're joining up two pieces of, of, you're joining up two computers. I'll leave it at that. And so we had built some of that. We had, you know, built up video players. We'd done all kinds of stuff just to make our company work. And I made the mistake of thinking, oh, well, every e-commerce company is going to love this. $8 million. A lot of data involved in that statement, right? <laughs> $8 million. So when I, when I tell people, write down the number and then ask yourself what kind of return you want. So my return on that was, I'll just say it was very low and I'll leave it at that. Was it, it was uh, not- these interest rates low? <laughs> it, it, was, it, was, it was not a good exit. Oh, that's, there are reasons why you don't see tombstones about the exit and I'm not bragging about it. I'll leave it at that which is good news because I'm not, I'm not talking out of theory. Like I, I did it and then looked back and said, holy shit, why did I do that? I've, so I've made these classic mistakes. And so coming, so why the roll-ups? Well, 
first of all, um, you know, that, that company, so 05 uh, to 2012, pretty typical trajectory, five, seven years. I mean, I could get into cycle theory and all that, but those are usually the numbers. You know, so I started looking at, all right, you know, getting older, how much clock do I have left? How many times can I do this? Number one, you know, like it's work. How many times can I do it? How many times do I want to do it? What do I want to do in my future, right? So I've got to think about it that way. And so if you want to build something quickly, there's no better way to do that than an LBO or a roll-up. You're taking an existing company, you're bolting a bunch of them together, and then you're selling that mass off to somebody, uh, which is usually a private equity fund or a strategic buyer. Now, of course, if you do it right, you can get great multiples. If you do it wrong, which a lot of people don't know, plenty of private equity gets abs- gets zero at the end of their you know fund life cycle because there's just there's no value. Good luck raising some money on the second round for that. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly right. They're like, well, we'll do fund number two. It's like a, it's like a pyramid scheme. It's like we'll kind of bail these companies out, and uh, you know they they hide that in the disclosure docs. It's like on page ninety eight. Uh, which, yeah, by the way, if you're investing in something, one of the questions you want to ask is, uh, how big is the fund pocket, right? So that's, that's basically slang for if the fund can actually put, can pocket money, what it means is like fully to the discretion of the, the GP, the general partner, which means if he's got a fund, number one, that's not doing so well, you might find your money going out to bail out <laughs> some of those. Learn that the hard way too. So anyway, that's, that's another show. So the, the lesson learned was, let's go back to the e-commerce company. To do it over with, I would have taken VC money. I would have gone out to Silicon Valley. I would have done the roadshow. I'd have been talking to the Sequoia Capitals, the A16Zs, even though maybe they wouldn't have invested in me, but they would have given me feedback. Uh, and it, by the way, it's not going to be a lot of feedback, probably one or two sentences every once in a while. Um, so that would have helped me refine my pitch, plugging into you know Silicon Valley networks and finding out, hey, what are you working on? What are you doing? What are you seeing out there in the marketplace? Do people actually want this? I could have gotten much better coding talent on and maybe carved out one thing out of my portfolio of stuff that I was trying to sell people and you know made money on that. So, you know, kind of balling all that together, like that's all of those learnings in are informing a lot of what I've been saying, you know, obviously on how to combat and not follow in those footsteps, but then also, you know, why am I choosing, you know, the route that I am? So the other reason was. Between 2012 and like 2017, uh, so I transitioned back into LBOs in 2017, 2018. I had tried going into companies as a hired gun. So CEO, CMO to, you know, I'd come in with an agreement for a chunk of equity. It was always, you know, right around 10% to start uh, with what are called hurdle rates. So I'd have to grow things in order to get more equity, but it was all based on what I did. And I even, I even gave the entrepreneurs like, look, at the end of the first year, if you don't like what we're doing, you can have your equity back, uh, which is like unheard of, which is another aspect of selling. Like I wanted to make it risk-free for these entrepreneurs I was working with. And Ryan, I got to tell you, um, I mean, I had one company, I made 8 million bucks in the first like 18 months in sales. Everything was growing and blowing. He, he called me. He's like, no, nope, I want my equity back. I was like, why? Oh. Why would you do that? And so the main reason why I transitioned was like, that was the last straw. Uh, well, no, that's not, that's not quite right. I'm sure I had one, a lot of people no, going into that. I, well, no, I make, it, I make it easy for them. I really do. So I had one more after that. It was another company. It was in, I won't get too specific because uh, I'm still under NDA. It was in the consumer packaged goods uh, environment and came in and said, look, I'm looking to grow something to two to 300 million. I'm looking to acquire companies. You on board with that? Yeah, let's go do it. And, you know, it became really apparent over about the first three months that this was not really what those entrepreneurs wanted. And I backed out of that one instead of, you know, continuing to go along. Uh, so there was one more after that last one. But so what's the, what's the moral of that story? The moral of the story is if, an, if the entrepreneur doesn't have the right mindset, there's no way you're going to go in and change that, even if you drop millions of dollars in sales on them. In fact, just one of the campaigns for that company, I was spending a quarter of a million dollars a month on Facebook for like one vertical. And it was basically day four profitable. And the guy still booted me and he killed that project. He just, for whatever, he just didn't like that. He didn't like me. He didn't like my, you know, didn't like my toothpaste. I don't know. He just, it came down to his mindset. He, he had stuff in his mind 
about how things should go or the way he wanted things to go rather than looking at it objectively like, okay, we're building a business. We, you know, we're not going to be here forever. Let's build something with some value and sell it off. So I said, you know what? I just need to get back into my, my own devices. So Maceo, like, I think what's super interesting to me, and I've been trying to like almost self-process over the years, like as I've gone through my journey to kind of realize the things that you're discussing too, is like, so there's the mindset, but like a mindset kind of encapsulates, if that's the right word, mm -hmm. um, your knowledge base and your emotions, right? So right. it's kind of like what we're talking about of like understanding the technical stuff, but then also managing your emotions like you're talking about in trading, as well as M&A. Can you help someone shift their mindset, which is kind of some of our messaging, like with knowledge and education to say, because it's hard as hell to manage your emotions, man. I'm like <laughs> the first to say like, I was a you know, sales guy, copier guy, you know, and I, all the emotional visionary stuff that comes with that. And over the years, I've been able to still be that person, but use like data. Yep. Keep me in check, I guess. <laughs> like, yep. Yeah. Like, right. Style. But I'm curious, like how you've seen people, have you seen people that have been able to make the jump or how do you personally manage those kind of uh, two dynamics? Fortunately, you know, there's some practical things you can do. Now, uh, there's a, a woman named uh, Denise Schull. She runs a, a trader consulting program. And it's just as simple as this. You can't bottle your emotions up, which for dudes, that's not what we want to hear, right? Now, well, I'm not saying, you know, <laughs> uh, now I'm not saying, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm a dude, right? I'm not going to cry and, you know, blubber and do all I will cry. But I mean, it's like, I'm just a typical dude. But if you are a guy that cries, what, what Denise would tell you is then go in your closet and cry, right? So one of the first things she would work on with the trader is, okay, if you, when you lose a trade, what's your emotion, what's your emotional rainbow, right? And so you'd have to write it down. So a bit of this is journaling um, and it's, you know, all free, free flowing. So what's running through your mind? What are you saying? Uh, I did a lot of recording anyway. So, you know, a lot of it got uh, captured on tape. And so what you might expect being a, an ex-military guy, mine was, it's not crying. It's like at the other end. I'm going to go break something. You know, the, right. Yeah. Yep. I heard power lifter before. So yeah. Oh yeah. So for me, it's like, I definitely get, you know, a, a emotional satisfaction if I break something. Right. So I'd have stuff in my garage that I could go break. You know, I would buy like uh, cheap aluminum pans. In fact, my, when my kids, when they were little, they would freak out. Cause I would take a pan and I would like bend it. You know, because for a kid, you know, it's a solid, uh, you know, it's like really solid, but they were cheap, uh, but I was still kind of strong. But anyway, so it's, it's like, just know yourself. That was Denise's encouragement was know who you are and be okay with it. You know, if you're somebody that you need to have a punching bag in your office, which she actually had a, a client who did big hedge fund manager, he had a bad trade. He would like lay into the punching bag for five or 10 minutes and he would be fine afterwards. Give yourself, number one, the freedom, as, as a, especially as a man, to experience, and I mean that, experience your emotions. Don't hold it back. You really want to go until you, you feel that release. And so this is where women really do have a leg up on us because, man, if, I mean, if a woman needs to cry, she's just going to start crying. If, you know, she needs to yell, she's going to yell. With, with dudes, because we hold that back, that's where we're like, whoa, what? Like, why are you doing that? Well, she's doing it because that's what she's feeling. Now you do like you do, you want to be circumspect when you do that, right? So I would try and, you know, go into the garage and do all this. My younger son, unfortunately, saw me during one episode. I took a hammer uh, to the top of my workbench because I couldn't find something. And I mean, this is like a two inch thick piece of wood and I busted off like this huge chunk of it. I'm like, like that. <laughs> but that's the level. If you do that and you're committed to that, I'm telling you, you will find massive results because you're no longer going to have the after effect. The after effect is where we go wrong because we've, we've got this anger that's bottled up and that's when it comes out with our wife and our kid and our business partner and our employees. And so this ripple effect in, in, in entrepreneurship is what is going to cause the problem. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when, like if a PE firm is coming in they see, yo, we've got this loose cannon. He's running around screaming at everybody. Um, you know, th that's where they're going to draw back because they know that toxicity is going to infect the company. But from a personal standpoint, it, as, especially as men, 
experience the emotion, don't hide from it. And with, with some guys that might get dark, I mean, I'll go to some really dark places. And so I'll let my brain do that. Um, and I'll let it do it for a while. And what I'll find is I'll always reach a point where it's too much and then it just fades away. But then I'm good. Like, you know, I'm not snapping at somebody, especially my kids. Um, so if, like if I've got a hard day at work and I, and I know I'm in a bad mood, I'll go take care of it. It's five, 10 minutes. If it's really bad, sometimes it's 15 minutes. So that's, it's, it's committing to that level of work. The next stage of it would be if, uh, if you're a guy and you, you got to find somebody, maybe it's your spouse, but maybe not. Uh, you know, you may need another dude that you can, you know, share this stuff with. I'm, I'm not leaving the ladies out deliberately. It's just, they usually have this handled, I find. Like they have a girlfriend, you know, they can go talk to, you know what I mean? It's just more, I don't want to say, it's more natural for them. I'll just it's say. It's interesting. And, and again, we don't have time for this podcast, but like I've interviewed a lot of very, very successful women on this show and their leadership and management style is insanely effective to build really powerful cultures because they're asking for input. They're collaborative. It's not ego driven. And again, a lot of generalizations here, but like just themes for the most part. Yep. Yeah. And so like to your point, like they've managed that scenario into using your story and example. It's because you go into a different event, a different company, or you get to the deal table and all that mm. crap's bottled up. Good luck. Oh, I mean, every deal dies a thousand deaths before yeah. you close it. And you're, you're going to be on, you know, issue number three and explode. Yep. I mean, it's like you can't, it's so, like you said, this world is objective. It's happening. Yep. You need to be able to control your reactions to it. <laughs> yeah. So the trader, the way you would experience, so you've got something on your computer screen. The office is totally calm. You can look around, nothing is going on. And yet if somebody had, you know, a heart meter on you, you know, you're sitting there, you know, 120 beats per minute, you're sweating, like the thoughts that are running, you know, just you're in a rage because you saw something happen on your screen. So if, if you don't have an outlet for that, you are going to make a decision based on that emotional state. And the, the biology is really clear when, when you get, and people call it fight, flight, freeze, you know, that just know that when you get into that state, you have biological blocks to logical thinking, biological blocks to creative thinking. So you're less creative, you're more impulsive. Um, in the military, we say you you don't rise to a level, you fall to a level. Mm-hmm. And I'm paraphrasing it. Yeah, and so yeah. you're gonna you're going to fall to a level, not rise to one. So if if you're at the deal table and you don't have some of this managed, what are you gonna do? Like if if you're going tomorrow to talk to somebody, if you can't fake that you only speak Spanish and have a translator there, uh, or if you do speak a second language, I would say have somebody translate. This is a, 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 a very unknown tactic of the Japanese. What the Japanese will do, even if they speak perfect English, is bring in a translator because it gives them time. Oh, that's brilliant. I didn't so build in some way of getting time into your negotiation process. Um, like, like I said, if you're going tomorrow and you haven't done any of this work, you've got to do that. What is any decision making? Well, yeah. I mean, I know uh, a lot of the traders that I studied under, what they would tell me to do is, hey, once you've decided to get on a trade, uh, wait five minutes, wait 15 minutes, get up, walk out of the room. I had one that would train me to write a, like a physical check for my loss. But that's all delaying you know, the decision from the action. Because you may make the decision in, in a mental state that's not good. And so if you, that translates into the click of a mouse, because that's so easy, they wanted to build in a buffer. And you, you'll find when you really dig into, not system traders like Dalio, uh, you know, but traders that have more discretion, you'll find that they, they build a lot of that in, mm-hmm. where it's not like, oh, I want in and click, they're yeah. in it. The ones that do, I'll say this, sometimes what, what we think is a born trader or a born salesman is really somebody that through their environment develop certain traits. And you'll find this, especially with people that came from abusive relationships, um, be, because they had to manage that abusive relationship, they've, they've got great people skills. So they're very good at looking at somebody and telling what their emotional state is, because that's like the difference between getting a beating and actually getting dinner that night. You know what I mean? And so some of what we observe in the world is really a byproduct of where somebody came from. So the next the next piece that I'll give people is 
my, my personality is geared this way. So for me, it is a little bit hardwired and it comes from what's called politeness. It's part of the big five personality inventory and politeness isn't please and thank you. It's more giving people respect solely for their position. Um, so I don't care if you put Donald Trump or Joe Biden in my room. I like, I'd be like, so what? You're just a dude. Like you put your pants on just like I do. You know, I could care less if you're the president or you're, you know, gazillionaire. So for me, I'm able to look past the surface stuff mm-hmm. and, and go behind all that to get to the real story. So how did, how did the deal really get done? How did you really get to be such a good salesman? Because I would endeavor people to do that, like really dig in and don't take people's words for it. Like, again, how do you know that? And based on what? So it's like, well, I was just born a salesman. Well, how, how do you know, know that? Based on what? That is the uh, phrase. Dude. <laughs> yeah, we don't have a lot of time. Yeah, I've, I've got three. So it's based on what? How do you know that? And it's all math. It, oh, wow. That last part, my partner would have <laughs> one thing on this planet that can't be solved with math. That's right. Uh, you're short, short on time. I need to let you go because you're uh, you're busy. Maseo, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, two final questions. Yes. What does the word intentional mean for you? Oh, man. Intentional would be the application of will over time. Ooh, I like it. What's the best place to find you and everything that you're doing online? Uh, well, fortunately, everything I do isn't online because I like keeping my secrecy, <laughs> my little <laughs> devious plans. MaseoJordan.com, that is the best place only because that's where people can actually get in touch with me. Uh, you know, I'm very much about working on practical stuff. Uh, I'd rather help you make $100 million than give you a PDF. Yeah, I love it. This has been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Good. Glad to be here. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Maceo. If there's a big takeaway I think you should have is the importance of market data, really understanding the trends that are happening in the marketplace. What are those trends doing to the consumer dollars and the businesses that you're working with? And how is that going to impact the margin erosion or margin surplus that's going to be happening inside the space that you're playing? Whatever areas you need to spend time researching, I think it's worth it because it'll give you the confidence you need to double down on your strategies or pivot those strategies to make sure that you don't wake up in a couple years caught off guard that the trends were not in your favor. If you wanna understand a little bit more underneath the components of strategic planning, check out the Intentional Growth Digital Course. Go to arcona.io, check it out on the Education tab, and there's a deep dive inside of strategic planning inside of our course. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Otherwise, I will see you next week.